let me do this again. You know, those butts contain microscope. Those butts contain microplastics and chemicals that are hard harm. Oh my God. Those butts complain, complain. <laughs> they come oh, yeah. those butts. You know where this is going, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. This week, we have a very fun and informative conversation with Lee Vickery, the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at Level Legal, as well as the CEO and founder of Queso Mama. So Lee shares her unique way of looking at things and coupling that with her passion for customer experience and hospitality, it creates a business model for the legal services that the rest of us should adopt. We have a lot of fun talking about this as well as her experiences running that Texas-based queso dip company, Marlene. <laughs> yeah, we were so excited to get that at the very at the very last question, so uh, that was cool. So stick around for that interview, but now let's get to this week's Information Inspirations. Marlene, our fellow geek, Casey Flaherty, went full-on math geek this week with his post on advancing... Yeah. <laughs> Advancing our thinking on low-end friction. And, you know, first of all, I have to tell everyone that, you know, Casey actually wrote something that was relatively brief for him. So <laughs> I, was, I was teasing Casey. him this afternoon about that. <laughs> so if you were waiting until you had set aside some significant time to read the, the blog post, you know, fear not. This is one of those that's very digestible. And, and the other thing is if you look close enough, it has at least two references to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And Props so, for that. Props yeah, for that. So, so that takes just a little bit of the sting out of the math that uh, Casey throws your way. So anyways, to, uh, in the article itself, Casey breaks down his longtime obsession that little changes make bigger differences than massive changes. And he uses an example of instead of a giant moonshot approach, like going from a vehicle that gets 50 miles per gallon to a vehicle that gets 500 miles per gallon, uh, we should focus on the process that actually takes you from one mile per gallon to two miles per gallon, and then eventually on to 10 miles per gallon. And what he was saying was, you know, look for those obtainable goals, even if the improvements are marginal. And in the article, he states that the aggregate impact of marginal gains can be significant when they are compounded. So it's like that, you know, if you improve 1% a day over the year, you've improved, you know, like 400 and Right. Whatever percent. So one of the things Casey uh, references is a quote from Alex Hamilton, uh, the author of the new book Sign Here. That's Alex Hamilton, not Alexander Hamilton. The, yeah, the I was worried character. for a second. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> but in that, Alex says that uh, you might find it depressing to discover that there is no single solution. But there is good news here, too, because many changes can be made as relatively small tweaks, and they can also be cheap, fast, 
and low risk. And it reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had recently about bringing in new products to the firm when we still hadn't even begun effectively using the products we already had. You know, a slight improvement with using Microsoft Word or Outlook or even your current contract drafting tool will make a bigger difference for your output and bottom line than it will bringing in yet another expensive tool that promises to be the silver bullet for all your problems. So uh, great article from from Casey. Cheap, fast, and low risk is going to be the name of my new band. So Marketplace had an interesting and really disturbing podcast episode on why it's so hard for biographies of women to stay on Wikipedia. So when you search for someone notable, you know, often a Wikipedia entry pops up, right? But if you're looking for a woman, you might not find them. There are about 1.5 million biography entries on Wikipedia, but only 19% are about women. And even if they do have a biography entry, women are often slated for deletion. Professor Francesca Trapiti discusses this in her paper, Miscategorized Gender, Notability, and Inequality on Wikipedia. So an example she gives is Donna Strickland. So Donna Strickland is a physicist who created tech for high-power laser work that won her a Nobel Prize in 2018. But she actually made a lot of headlines because she didn't have a Wikipedia page. Mm. Now, Trapity explains when you look at the revisionist history for her, her bio was created in 2014, but was nominated for deletion and flagged for speedy deletion and then erased. I don't even know what speedy deletion is, but yeah, it was erased. Trapati also uses an example of Louise K. Alexander Lane, uh, a woman of color who was very influential in promoting black involvement in the fashion industry. She founded two museums, she wrote books, and clearly met the criteria for a Wikipedia page, yet when someone tried to create the page for her, it was rejected. Mm. So yeah, there's valid reasons out there for deletion, but why would the bios of these women, you know, be deleted or not even created? Even if there was something wrong, why didn't it get corrected or addressed? Because without a Wikipedia page, Google and Alexa, you know, they don't pick you up. Yeah. Trapity says that, that Wikipedia is really only part of a larger problem that women experience online. In fact, she notes that women who edit on Wikipedia like to work in what they call quiet corners so as not to stir controversy and draw attention to themselves. Like, great. Mm. (laughs) And another thing she pointed out was women who edit get date requests. And, you know, uh, word to the wise, that's not why they're doing it. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I I listened to that this morning, and it's. I agree, it's quite depressing. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. Lots of room for improvement there. All right, let me see if uh, if I can get out of this funk you just put me in. So, (laughs) (laughs) sorry. Well, my second inspiration is if you want to see a creative business model in the legal industry, I think Bob Ambrogi's two-part article slash podcast will pique your interest on this. So Bob talked with the Resurrected Business Up Council and their CEO, KJ Erickson, and Chief Revenue Officer, Paul Drabat. Up Council is a platform where small businesses can post legal work that they need done on the Up Council website and have lawyers actually bid for that work. And so the new business model is a subscription service for the lawyers, and they also have like an 8% fee for the businesses. 
and UpCounsel is calling this as legal as a service model, which you know not not original, but uh, kind of fits fits the mold here. Mm-hmm. The other interesting business dealings that uh, UpCounsel is is trying out is they're actually crowdfunding to raise possibly up to five million dollars, and it's this you know it's definitely a unique approach on raising capital. And but I can tell you this: if if UpCounsel pulls this off, it's probably going to open the door for other legal entrepreneurs out there to follow. Yeah, I definitely like to see how this works out. Well, Greg, since my last inspiration was so depressing. I needed something uplifting for the next good, one. So, good, so, good, so, good. I, I need uplifted too. So, so I did too. <laughs> <laughs> so first kids, if you're under 14, you can now legally run a lemonade stand from your yard without a license in New Hampshire and Illinois. Now, why do we need this law? Well, some adults are cranky and curmudgeon and they just have it in for entrepreneurial kids. For example, someone complained to the health department when Haley Martinez, a nine-year-old, opened a lemonade stand in Illinois. She was charging 50 cents a cup, and she was using it to fund college. Mm. So the health department shut her down, so she went to a donation model. Way to go, Haley. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, and and we wonder why kids sit around and play videos all day, you know, when you 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 read stuff like this. There was a tweet yesterday where someone said that their kid made like $110 at their lemonade stand. And that was because <laughs> people were, were paying her in like $5 and $10 bills. And she didn't really understand about giving change, so she just <laughs> kept it. And so, and the people were too embarrassed to ask for their money back. <laughs> it's like, way to go, kid. It's like, that might be a good model, you know? It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> And second, if you're in the Netherlands and see gross cigarette butts on the beach, it may not be for long. There's now a bot that picks them up. So the bot uses AI and image detection algorithms, you know, sort of like driverless cars, to distinguish between cigarette butts and, say, flip-flops. Those butts contain microplastics and chemicals that are harmful to wildlife. All I can say, though, is is those bots just better not pick up food or they're going to have the gulls to contend with. Yeah, and, and I wonder, can it tell the difference between, say, cigarette butts and, say, cigar butts? Can well, it can recognize, like, the difference between, you know, towels and flip-flops and, like, larger garbage. I, you know, I'm not sure if it can completely distinguish between cigars and, and cigarettes, yeah. Well, people um, but, shouldn't be smoking cigars on the beach anyway. Well, they shouldn't be smoking, period. But that's true. You know. Well, that's good. When I feel, I feel more uplifted already. Yeah, cleaner <laughs> beaches and lemonade. And and that wraps up this week's information inspirations. In an industry focused on revenue and profit, where does something like customer experience stand in the priorities of legal providers? Today's guest says that we need to look at the corporate and legal industry world differently. Instead of putting shareholders and partners first, they actually fall much further down the list. If you take care of your employees and your customers first, there's still plenty left over for the shareholders and everyone is better off in the end. We'd like to welcome Lee Vickery, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at Level Legal, as well as CEO and founder of Queso Mama, Lee, welcome to the Geek in Review. 
Thank you, Marlene. Thank you, Greg. I've been a fangirl, like I said earlier, <laughs> for a long time. So a fan geek, I should say. Well, Lee, before we get too deep into the conversation, I wanted to ask you about something that you put on your bio there at Level Legal and have you comment on that first. So let me let me just read how your bio starts off. So it says, at an early age, Lee discovered that she writes upside down and backwards and was quite surprised <laughs> that no one else did. From that day forward, she's been at peace with seeing the world a little bit differently. So, I th- I, one, I think that's great. And two, you know, how have you leveraged your unique talent of, I mean, literally seeing things differently to help you see the legal <laughs> industry differently? Oh, I love that. Well, first, you, you have no idea how valuable uh, that gift has turned out to be. You know, actually, I figured out I could read upside down and backward first. I was about six years old. I can quickly see what someone's going to say before they say it, but I'll just say that. People tend to see what they expect to see and see what they want to see in life, I think, if you'll think about how you read or just how you see things. When you're writing upside down and backwards, and and this is something I came into the world with, it's not something I taught myself, it's truly just the way I'm made. Mm -hmm. But when, when I'm writing upside down and backwards, it takes the ability to put myself in the shoes, if you will, of the person facing me. I, I have to flip my mind as if to see as they see. So the paper, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, to be able to write from their perspective. So I'm starting at the end, you know, of the sentence basically in writing. So if I stay in my own perspective, I can't do it. I can't stay in both places. You know, I'll mess up. Mm-hmm. And so it's been kind of an overwhelming gift. And that's kind of this desire and care for the other person, not just an innovation or different ways of seeing things, which which obviously is part of of how I work too, whether it's a new product, new service, or something missing in the market, that all plays into it as well. But when I really break down that talent or gift or whatever you want to call it, 100% I'm having to flip my mind into how are they going to see this? And as we talk more, you'll see kind of that's how I've done my life's work. Would you say it's kind of like emotional intelligence, basically being able to see how the other person is thinking? For sure. I think that's the label now for it. You know, you you guys had the the woman from Ropes and Gray on not too long ago who I, that when they hired her, I was like, yes. I mean, I thought that was the, (laughs) the smartest thing anybody had ever done. Like I'm dying to meet her and talk to her. That's all really all we're doing is Understanding human behavior. Why do people do what they do? Decision making. That's all we're doing, whether it's, you know, law or queso and, and having the empathy for that, caring about it, seeing that way, and then you'll win the day. So yes, I feel like there's something, something in me that started when I was six years old and it's just five decades later, carried forward, and I'm, it just is who I am. Well, I was thinking of, of two things. One, I was thinking this is uh, that, that you're more like uh, Professor X from the X-Men, that you can almost like read <laughs> read minds. And and two, I, I can imagine this this might be a pretty fun uh, thing to pull out at parties, right? And <laughs> pull up a whiteboard. Oh, oh, and- I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I missed my chance to go David Letterman with stupid human tricks <laughs> along the way. But... Yeah, whenever a party's boring, I'm like, hey, look what I can do, you know. And then I've, I'm still to this day, I have not met anyone that can do it. I'm, I'm dying to meet someone. And also, it's been fun. Like a lot of people that are have children that are dyslexic mm-hmm. have me do it and show it as a gift and 
kind of encourage them. That's another thing I was thinking is is that you've pointed to this as as much more of a gift than some some type of outlier or disability. And, and so it's That's really right. interesting. Now, I, I do know on the mirror writing, I think Dimitri Martin, the comedian, I think he can do that. Mm. Oh, cool. I don't know. So. I don't know him, but I'll look him up for sure. See, Thanks. It's already I'll, worth the I'll, price of admission. Now. He's on Absolutely. Twitter. That's right. <laughs> I need to find Dimitri. Cool. So, Lee, to apply this back to Level Legal, how are you taking this and applying it to the work that you're doing there? Yeah, yeah. From this perspective, you know, I, I don't have a legal background. And if I could you know, get on my sandbox that I wish every law firm, every ALSP would realize the value of bringing in an outside perspective, whatever that is to the table of just someone that doesn't mind saying, well, why do you do it that way? Well, what is that for? You know, a a CEO and a leadership team that allows that is huge. It was so foreign to me how rigid the legal industry is. Um, So we've had a lot of fun trying new things So bringing in not only different technologies or my business background and productizing things or, you know, law isn't this bespoke thing necessarily. Yes, you can replicate and and have a SKU-based system on, you know, some things, but legal should be first in line with empathy with their customer. Mm-hmm. And yet, it'd be hard to find that sometimes. Yeah. A lawyer that yeah. really understands how the client feels. They're good at what they do. But what we say at work is being good at what you do is about 49%. How you make that customer feel, that's the other 51%. So we we actually talk about hospitality at Level Legal. Some people might laugh and say, hospitality, okay, you know, what, you're at your grandmother's, what, you're back in your restaurant world, food world, but no, hospitality, every one of us are in the hospitality business. When you have that mindset, we hire for it. We have the traits we hire for. Traits, not skills, traits, values. Like our job descriptions and postings say putting a smile on someone else's face. And you know what I'm talking about there. Like when you're solving a problem and their smile brings joy to you, like, if I can tell you just this great little story really, really quickly. Sure. We just hired six new people last week, and we did an onboarding on site. They're from all over the country. They've never been to Texas. So the last night, we all, they thought we were just all going to dinner, and our CEO had had on his own called to Covas, T-E-C-O-V-A-S, which is this, like, modern, like, badass boot company, and he bought all of Walked in, they all got to buy their own first pair. None of them had ever, none of them had cowboy boots. <laughs> and so it's, you know, Welcome to what? Texas. yeah. And so, and they're like, they're like, they're ours for life. These, and right. so we take care of our employees first. You know what I mean? And so it's just fun, stuff like that. And that was his idea, not mine. And it's in our DNA. So that's kind of how I think we've brought it, maybe how I've helped bring that along. So innovation isn't just legal, isn't just technology, by the way. It, it, it's thinking. And things like this. That's another thing I would like. I wish legal tech or legal would realize that innovation comes in many different forms. So Lee, you've written about getting away from the Friedman theory of economics and becoming more client focused Mm. rather than strictly profit focused for legal service providers. What do you see as some of the biggest barriers to us in the legal industry to move from moving the needle from pointing to what's best for shareholders to the stakeholders? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you found that, 
that was one of the first pieces I wrote in legal, and I, I did not realize what traction it was going to get. But yeah. and I, and I think most people know what the Friedman theory is. But would, would you mind talk, talking just a little bit about what what the Friedman theory is? Sure. I'll try to give you the academic version, not my personal um, view. But so basically, Friedman said shareholders first in the corporation and maximize their profit. Period. The end. Right. That's it. You know, Marlene, you said what's best for shareholders to the stakeholders. First, I want to point out all of us have the same stakeholders. Corporation, law firm, business, life. We all have the same five. And it's really just about what order we put them in. Friedman put shareholders first. And so you hear client-centric now in law firms, and it makes me kind of laugh a little bit. It's kind of a hollow phrase. So there's a correct order. And the best way to ensure a great customer experience, like I said earlier, is the employees, your own team, has to be the first stakeholder. You take care of each other, your own team. And so it's not rocket science, but your customer, your client can never be any happier than you are, the employee coming to work. And as a leader, the person you're managing can never have a better experience than you feel at work. When you switch your mind around, and I guess there, there we go again, it, it's pretty logical that you've got to start with each other. And I mean, it's kind of like with, with your well-being and mental health, you've got to take care of yourself first. So it's kind of each other, then, then the customer, the client, then the community, then suppliers, and then investors. Somebody's listening going, what? Investors, why last? Well, if you don't put them last, then they'll take everything. So you have to prioritize <laughs> carefully on who really matters and who needs the best care. And then you can kind of play a longer game and a, a business strategy. And that's the order that Level Legal has. And, and the, the people that are investors listening, they know that they're last <laughs> right now. Um, but that's, that's kind of how we see it. If we are not taking care of each other first... Than the customer. Well, I'm sure they can put themselves last and still be pretty profitable. So, Lee, listening to this and, and listening to the order that you just laid out on there, and the way law firms are structured, can they really move away from these short-term strategic goals and, and pivot more to long-term ob- objectives? You know, we have this partnership model and, and the financial and regulatory restrictions that we have to follow. So is it possible for us to change? I mean, if I can just be bold, you, you're making the assumption, Greg, that the model can't change. I mean, sure, there's some, some regulatory, but look at Europe. Look at yeah, what's Greg. happening in Utah. <laughs> yeah, Greg. Yeah. And I like you so much, Greg. I admire you so much and respect you. I, I do listen That's to you. Okay. But, but we have this model. No, we don't. Well, it, 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 a is, a, model. it is a de facto model that's, that's in the, it, the no, industry. No, for sure. So, for example, all profits are distributed at the end of the year. It's a cash basis, uh, typically, for the firms. Sure. Um, it's a partnership uh, model as well. So I'll, I'll just come out and say no, it, you know, the right. way that we've always done it that we have to overcome. So I'm just wondering, how do you change the mindset of the partnership to be much more long-term objective than short-term objective? No, I agree. I agree. They're, they do have that model for sure. It is based on the general economic assumption. It's based on self-interest. It's based on maximizing their own financial returns. You're right. It's based on an old model, I guess is what I was trying to right. say. 
So look at what's going on today. It's based on one thing, finances, financial capital, that Friedman thing. But you look at the world today and, and what is another critical asset with you've got 24-7 scrutiny. Look at COVID. Look at cyber. You've got to be able to measure other things. And it's not just, I'm not talking about soft things. I mean, seriously, when the world's suffering from a global trust deficit, that self-serving business model is is going to make them extinct if they don't change. So how I look at it is, can they change or are they going to be forced out? And that's where I was going with Utah, Arizona, big four. Look at all the tasks that companies like Level Legal elevate what technology is going to take. And so if they don't change, then a lot of what they're used to keeping will go away. Some entrepreneurial-minded attorney is going to come along that knows how to play the long game, that can take this model and understand that a volume-based practice with technology, and like what I was talking about, understands business better, is going to flip this on its head. We're not there yet, but we will be. So Lee, you write about how law firms need to adopt an economics of mutuality methodology where there's a more equitable value across the entire legal supply chain. What do you mean by the economics of mutuality? I've kind of hinted at it, I think. Um, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not a socialist. I may sound like one in this back and forth. I'm all for profit. I, you know, I'm all for maximizing yeah, I mean, you profit. Know, you, ta- you talked about how, okay, you know, we have to focus on something other than annual financial returns. But when you say the, the legal supply chain, I mean, are you, are you talking the employees? Are you talking the business? Sure. You know, the business folks? Are you talking something else? It's, it actually goes back to those the five stakeholders I mentioned earlier. But the term economics of mutuality, I was fortunate enough to learn from the Mars family, like the M&M Mars, Mars Inc. company, in a talk I heard a few years ago straight from them. And I am grateful for that. And I've been kind of obsessed with it. And I'm going to be a fellow in the, at Oxford University Business School this fall. Wonderful. In the Economics of Mutuality program. That's great. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yes. So in, it started in 1947 with Mr. Morris Sr., Sr. And so he wrote a letter, kind of the same thing I was saying earlier with how much is enough. Those are my words, not his. But he wanted to know, how do you take this across the entire supply chain where there's a mutuality of services and benefits from all the way from the consumer, distributor, competitors, suppliers, employees, shareholders, and the communities on which it depends. So everything it touches. And when you do that, how do you measure it? And this isn't a touchy-feely thing. This is These are KPIs that touch social capital, environmental capital, financial capital, mental capital, all of these things. So you, because you've got to take a holistic view on what is your company helping and hurting in the environment and in everything. So you can apply it. So, oh, go ahead. No, I mean, I was, I was just going to ask, it's like, you know, is it different for sort of large multinational companies versus law firms, you know, where companies like people are buying stuff from these companies and you don't have the same sort of scale in terms of buying of services from, from law firms. And, you know, maybe, you know, for some of these larger 
law firms, you know, you, you do have a limited group that are actually buying the services. So is it, is it the same? Well, um, not, not at all. So I apply this, I mean, my company's relatively tiny. It's how I choose to take care of my employees. It's how I choose to buy the cheese and from whom it's the kind of plastic you buy. It's the, we're a paperless company. It's small decisions. It's also well-being. It's it's doing the right thing. It's also, I mean, in law firms, it's how you treat the associates. It, it's also planting trees for the next generation, so to speak. So you're not playing the short game. It's your it's treating your staff. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's also in the I community, do. and it's not. I mean, are you? Are you, are you taking, are you, are you freedmaning the world or are you not? You know what I mean? And so it doesn't matter what size you are. You can do it in your three person company. So it's interesting. You would say that someone else is asking me the same thing. And so I'm I must not be giving that message very well because it, it, maybe the Mars, the Mars thing tends to make it seem like it's something only a huge company I'm can just do. If, but if it's, firms, firms feel they need to do this, whereas, you know, the Mars company, that would work well, well for their end game. Well, it's actually harder for them to do. Think They had to go all the way back to fair trade. They had to stop. Think about how they had to go back to the cocoa farmer. It took that initiative. So I would actually argue it's, it would be easier to control. All I ask is one big law firm to let me come on <laughs> and let's start with how they give distributions. Let's just start there. <laughs> And change that, and then we'll see. It's a mindset. It's really, honestly, it's a, and it, it's, it's who wants to take the first step. That I, I wish people could see that in time, this will pay off. It really will. So. Well, Lee, you, you focused on a lot of data gathering as a method to better understand the client and, and their needs. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like what Amazon does or the now famous New York City r- restaurant, 11 Madison Park. So what kind of data and information should legal services, whether that's the, a law firm or it's an ALSP or even those that are playing in the, the new regulatory sandboxes of, of Utah and Arizona, what is the client sharing with us that we're not gathering and, and answering? We forget that our clients are consumers. What I mean is we forget that they're shopping at Costco and they're buying their shoes on Zappos and they're getting their stock tips on a subreddit. We could learn a lot from how a restaurant runs in like 11 Madison Park. I went to Chicago not that long ago to a restaurant called Ever, E-V-E-R, that just won two Michelin stars. And I got to go in the back and I got to ask questions about the data So think about how you run your business, like front of house, back of house in e-discovery with customer service and with all the analysts and what's going on the back of house and how a restaurant runs. The data they are collecting on when food is coming out, when someone sits down, how long it takes X to go out, how many seconds it takes to walk out, who the customers are, how many times have they been here, what are their children's names, what are their allergies, what do they like to be called, is it the second wife? What was that phone call about? I'm not joking. Or is it not his wife? How about that? I listened to all of this. It is data driven, but what does it feel like? 
personal, customized experience. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is like, that's the first time it hit me. This is what we're doing. This is how we're building. And that consumer data is what we are missing in our experience in legal, like understanding them that when, when they're used to banking in real time and I can open my app and see the second my children are spending something on my card, they're not supposed to, why am I waiting 30 days or 45 days for some ridiculous invoice? I should be in real time. I should be understanding them as humans and pleasing them like a restaurant does using their consumer data. So we're gazing at our navels with all of our own metrics and not really using human consumer data yeah. to build our services. So that's what I would say. So is just to, what just we're to play doing. a little bit with this, with this parallel. Okay. I think what you're saying is that if a restaurant like uh, 11 Madison Park ran like a law firm, they would say, we produce the best food out there, that we are as good or better than any restaurant in New York, and therefore we should be successful. And I think that's kind of what law firms tend to do. We have the best attorneys. We do the best Mm -hmm. legal services. But it's that add-on. It's the you know it's it's the that personal experience that the clients get that we're, we're we tend to miss, and we miss that because we don't really understand or or track or follow uh, you know what's important to the clients, even even the little things. Is, is that fair? Well, except for the part where Eleven Madison Park doesn't have to say it about themselves. We say it for them, and the lines are out the door, and the Michelin stars are coming. They're so happy to do the work they do because they're putting smiles on other people's faces. That that's the difference. Yeah, I'm just. This is just an aside. Like I'm just thinking of like websites I've seen for law firms, and I mean, do I see anything that kind of has that type of messaging on it? And I can't. I can't think of any um, at all. All, all of them look the same to me, actually. You know, it's sort of like, well, they do. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of like, how how would they, like, you know, Greg was talking about, okay, how, you know, a restaurant would do it if they were a firm. It's like, you know, how would a firm do it if they were? Um, well, I'm, I'm just thinking like the metrics of, uh, you know, getting getting a Michelin star is not the same as getting a high ranking on the AMLA 100. Or chambers, um, yeah, or you know. it, yeah, because it would oh, be. Oh goodness, that's great, Greg. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. What is yeah? Because because Amwell is just that's financials or whatever. Otherwise, the the best restaurant in, in the country would be McDonald's, right? If we exactly. looked at profits. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, you got to write about that. That's an excellent. <laughs> that's excellent. We've got to come up with our own um, ranking for how you make people feel. So. We mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you're also the CEO and founder of Queso Mama. Uh, the career started <laughs> off with many parallels to what you've discussed about legal, and that's understanding the consumer market, identifying trends, and leveraging that foresight into filling a need in the market. So we, we've been waiting for this yeah, question the, I, the whole podcast. So tell us about the journey <laughs> behind Queso Mama. Oh, gosh. It's crazy. But on the one hand, it doesn't seem like it would go with law, but it really is about seeing something missing in the market. 
you know, at the time the company started, there, there was not an all-natural refrigerated queso on the market. I was too early, but I knew it, it was coming. Like there's going, like how hummus trended, guacamole. All there was was Velveeta type things. And then the market decided to enter with shelf-stable Tostitos, like gunk, and it kind of stuck. Well, and so our company organically has grown, and now the market is hitting. I mean, it's a very, it's it's in Costco's and Target's and Whole Foods, and it, has, it grew 385% last year. Our revenues last year, we've already passed at the six-month mark this year, and it's like crazy. Um, time. So Smith, my younger son, just graduated from college in finance, which is not my strong point. And I needed a full-time sidekick. And we are, we're very close. Both my sons and I are. So he's now full-time on and we're having a great time. I mean, we know our demographics. We are the largest all-natural refrigerated queso in the country. And here's the other part that'll tie in to this. We have the most loyal following, and that is how we grew. I have talked to everybody. We take care of everybody. Our social media is very strong. So it's not just queso. It's it, it's an experience, right? Yeah, it is. Honestly, it is. It's, it's putting yourself in somebody else. You know, it goes back to seeing how, how do I want to make somebody else feel? How would they feel um, eating it? So it really does go back to being able to write upside down and backwards everything in life. <laughs> I, I didn't, I don't think I realized that till you asked me that question. Um, I'm not kidding. So. Well, it sounds like we, we've come full circle on this. Uh, well, Lee Vickery uh, of uh, Level Legal and of uh, Queso Mama, you know, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Um, thank you both. Thank you. It's a delight. Well, it was great having. I mean, we kind of jumped around a lot on the the conversation there, but we did. Uh, you know, anytime we can talk, you know, economic theory and you know how to treat the customer well, and some some really good restaurants and and, and queso and queso, that was great. But I think you know there was definitely a number of things to to think about, especially on you know a lot of us talk about as client service, but I think this actually kind of went a little bit deeper than what we normally just think of as as client service, and that's kind of almost this this client predictiveness and and top shelf uh, style of, of service to the client. Yeah, and it's client predictiveness, but it's like it's humanizing the client. I mean, we always hear about client service and best in class, but you know we don't really hear about like what does the the client when i say client i mean like the individuals that you're dealing with not just the the the, the entity right. you know what do these people care about what's their life like and you know getting an understanding of that in order to to really be able to um embody this whole human aspect to the relation you know to to the interactions in the relationship yeah, yeah. And I, I think she's right. I think we need to figure out a way to uh, create our own Michelin stars for uh, legal services. So. Yes, I think that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again to Lee Vickery from Level Legal for joining us today. Thank you, Lee. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 
487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I'm going to the uh, beach to pick up some butts. <laughs> pick up lots of butts. Bye. <laughs>